All right, uh, let's recap. Anybody remember what the first week was? We were talking about foundations. And there's a reason why we're doing this recap every week. These are foundations. They need to be something you remember. Yes, cornerstone. Very good. Talk about Jesus as the chief cornerstone. He's the, the starting place for everything. And the one who has placed the everlasting kingdom in your hands. The second was uh, camp life. We talked about life in the wilderness, focused on the rebellions recorded in the book of Numbers, if you remember that. But ultimately, what we were looking at was God wanted to dwell with his people. He wanted to be with his people. And after that, we talked about tabernacle. Yes. It's exciting, huh? We talked about tabernacle, and this was the, the actual place of dwelling in the center of the camp. Uh, when the, the Israelites were in the wilderness where, where God was, would dwell and he made a way to be able to dwell with his people because that's what he wanted to do. We also discussed how uh, that was just the beginning of that uh, through God or, or that God through Jesus uh, made way for us to become his dwelling place, for us to be the tabernacle and the holy of holies. And then we looked at the priestly anointing and Christ's priesthood, uh, how that created a new class of royal priests, right? Where where we uh, are those royal priesthoods now. Uh, originally, it was the entire nation of Israel was called a royal priesthood in Exodus 19.6, if you remember that. Uh, but now in Christ's new covenant, the title of royal priesthood is reapplied to the church. It's reapplied to us as the body, as his body. And then last week... Uh, Teaching, I did it on Monday morning, and so if you haven't had an opportunity to go listen to that, I would recommend you do that. It was on the servant and son, and walked through a couple of chapters in Isaiah, uh, looking at the servant of the Lord, Jesus, and how he showed up to serve, but not to be served, and how he did so as a son, and how his act of service allowed us to be brought into the family and into sonship. Uh, which means that no matter what the mission is that God has has called you to, uh, you are there to to serve, and you are serving in the authority and power of a son of the Most High God. And so that's that's a recap of what we've gone through so far. And so this week we're going to be talking about the altar and the offering, and and I want you to be able to leave here today with an understanding of what Jesus did for us as the ultimate and final offering uh, that atoned for our sins and made a way for us to enter into the presence of God without fear, without worry about uh, of death. Because if you, under the old covenant, if you were to enter into the presence of God, enter into the tabernacle without sacrifice being made first, without an offering being made, it could kill the person. Who's entering? All right. So today we're talking about altar and offering. Uh, go ahead and, and turn your Bibles to Hebrews 9. This is the main scripture we're going to be using today. And we're going to really focus on the offering. Uh, altars. In the Old Testament, there were different kinds. There were altars that were made of just dirt, just mounds of earth built up. And that was what would be used for the altar as a place to, to give offering to God. 
Another one was of uncut stones where those would be piled up and that would be the altar. And then there was obviously the one we talked about when we looked at the tabernacle and out in the courtyard, there was the altar that was covered in bronze. It was a bronze altar. And it gave, in the book of Numbers, it gave the dimensions for that and what that would be, uh, how that would be constructed. And then later it got bigger and bigger with Solomon's temple. And I think it was even bigger than that one when the second temple was built after, um, what's the word I'm thinking about? After they were taken captive uh, into Babylon. I'm just working on the word I'm trying to think of now. Anyways, after they were taken captive into Babylon uh, and they came back and built the second temple, uh, the, the altar got even bigger. And so uh, now we have, with, with us being on this side of the cross and the sacrificial system being taken away because that was old covenant, we have a new altar now. It's not one where uh, the slaughter of an animal is happening and there's blood being sprinkled around to, to atone for, for whatever uh, uh, needed, uh, whatever the, the contamination was and, and needed to be made right for sacred space again. We don't have that kind of altar anymore. Now we have an altar that is, is more for us to be able to come to. It is not a specific place. It can be anywhere. It can be anywhere. You can go to the altar and say, God, here I am. I'm ready to be the living sacrifice, the offering. And he will, will take that and, and, and use you in a manner that he's called you to. The important thing to remember here is this is, this is not a place of slaughter. This is a place of refinement. This is a place where he's taking things that need to be pulled out of your life, right? So you can be focused on holiness and discipleship. There are things going to be removed from your life. And that's what's happening on the altar. It's not a place of slaughter. It's a place of refinement. All right, Hebrews 9. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship, an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a, a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak, we cannot now speak in detail. Okay, if you remember back when we described the temple or described the tabernacle in the wilderness, the uh, altar of incense that was inside was not in the most holy place. It was just outside the veil of the most holy place where the lampstand and the table were for the, the showbread. And uh, there is, there's, this description here could have just been uh, alluding to the fact that the incense would have permeated behind the veil and would have made it back into the most holy place where it would be a pleasing aroma to God. It also talked about Aaron's staff that budded and the golden urn holding manna uh, being inside of the ark. Uh, it, it, when you start to read in other places, I, I think in, in Kings, 
it, it talks about only the tablets that uh, Moses received with the Ten Commandments were in there and that these other things were placed before the ark. And so I, I, we're not, it's not exactly clear where this information came from, but I just want you to know, like if you start to see these things and you read them, and it, it's not the exact same as what you you remember or what you have read in other places in the Old Testament where the, the, uh, this description differs here, just know that there is, uh, there is some different things that could have taken place when they moved from the tabernacle into Solomon's temple that he built, or even into the second temple after um, the captivity uh, uh, was over and, and people started returning to Jerusalem and they built that second temple. And there could have been uh, uh, some other uh, things written that we don't have in that time period that says something different was done later. And so I just want you to be able to, to see these things because it doesn't follow the exact same description that we talked about when we looked at the tabernacle. And one of the other things it says of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Uh, and I believe that that is talking about the ark because at this point, the ark was, was gone. All right, verse six. It says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So it says here that into that second place, only the high priest goes. And we know we talked about Jesus as the, the final high priest going into uh, the Holy of Holies. And it talks about, it says that the high priest had to first offer blood on his behalf before he could go and offer it on behalf of the people. This is different with Jesus as the high priest because he was without sin, tempted but with, was without sin. Everybody remember talking about that? So he didn't have to offer blood on his behalf. He could just enter in and offer that on our behalf. And we're going to talk more about, uh, it says, uh, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. We're going to talk more about that in a minute, because this is important when it comes to understanding and having uh, awareness uh, of sin. Let's go on, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then though the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So he didn't have to enter into the holy place by offering the sacrifice of blood and goats. The offering was himself, his own blood. 
and we, we can look at this and, and really start understanding, okay, this, this is the, the better sacrifice, the better offering was made through Jesus, through his blood. Because we don't have to worry about offering animal sacrifice over and over and over again. Which is something the priests had to do under the old covenant. It was a continuous process every single day. But there's a better sacrifice been made with Jesus and his blood. It only had to be done once. And that, that secured eternal redemption. The old covenant system of sacrifice would look at sins from the past, and that was to to cover those. It was never looking forward at what was to come. It was always looking back. And with an eternal redemption here, this is even this is even better because now it looks backwards and forward at the same time. I, I know for me when I when I read this and started thinking about it, it's it's easy to start looking at worthiness. And, and am I worthy? You know, you go back and you read in Leviticus and you look at all the different sacrifices that were made and that were required to make you fit for sacred space. And here Jesus is offering eternal redemption through his own blood for me. Not something that has to be done over and over again, but just this one time. And I start looking at all these things and, you know, we, we talked about how those, those uh, rebellions in the book of Numbers kind of pulled up a mirror to us, and, and we can look at these things and see our own rebellions. And then I, 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 I'm thinking about this, and I'm looking at that, and I'm saying, wow, I, I'm not worthy of, of this uh, uh, securing of eternal redemption on my behalf by Christ. That was the temptation that was, that was before me there, was to, to look at this and see my own unworthiness. And that's what's really screaming at you is to, to look at that. Look at yourself as unworthy of what Christ did on the cross. But there's a, there's a better thing there. If you sit and silence the noise of the temptation to look at this and say you're unworthy, there's an invitation there. And the invitation is from God to say, you are worthy. I see you as worthy. That's why I did this. When we, when we read these things and, and we start looking at, at what we've done and we start holding up a mirror to ourselves, it, it makes the, the offering that Jesus gave of himself so much more precious, so much more meaningful to us. And if you look at it, if you allow yourself to look through God's eyes, you'll see that you are worthy of the sacrifice, which is why he did it which is why the offering was made to secure your eternal redemption. And the, the, the crazy part about this is, and we're going to get more into this in a second, is you don't have to do anything for this. Your worthiness is not merited based off your performance. It's not merited based off anything that you can do. You have just been deemed worthy by God, period. then having redemption applied to you is as simple as just believing. It really is that simple. Verse 13. 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, those who were not fit for sacred space and needed to have this done for them, could sanctify, if that alone could sanctify, how much more does Christ sacrifice when he offered himself without spot or blemish? Remember, he was tempted but remained without sin his whole life. How much more can you find sanctification through that sacrifice? And says to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There needs to be an understanding here of dead works and living God. And understand that there is a real contrast being made from your striving under the old covenant to do things on your own or having sacrifices made on your behalf through a human is dead works. What Jesus did allows you to serve the living God, not a dead God. There's a contrast being made here, and and we need to catch these things. The, The works that you're attempting to do to earn salvation or to earn worthiness are dead. You're dragging around something that is is of a lesser thing. You have the opportunity to serve the living God. And we need to catch these things. We need to be able to say, okay, I can see this now. I can see that the blood of Jesus was, was shed on the cross. And yes, he died. But what happened three days later? He was resurrected. He lives. It's not, we are serving a, a God who died for us and stayed dead. So we need to catch the contrast between dead works and the living God. Verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred, that redeems them, redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only, excuse me, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Talking about a will, right? That legal document that you make before you die that says, here's what will be done with all my stuff when I die. But where will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. So right before that, it says, Jesus, therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So the eternal inheritance is the thing that was laid out in the will, right? Life, eternal life. What was promised under the old covenant? What what do we know was going to happen? When we look at the sin of Adam, what was the inheritance of his sin? It was death. 
right? We know that. Matter of fact, let's let's uh, hold your hand there and jump over to Romans five. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Death reigned even when the law hadn't yet been given. This was the inheritance that was received through Adam's sin. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Okay, so Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a type of Christ. There's a representation there. And so through Adam's sin, we inherited death. And through Jesus's offering, we inherited life. And I think we can see this. Uh, I'm going to read something here. I'm going to jump over to Genesis 3. Uh, you can, you don't have to go there. I'm just going to read this real quick. I want us to be able to see this. Uh, Genesis 3, starting in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate. So the, the conversation happens with, with Eve and the serpent, and she looks at the tree. She sees that the, the fruit on it is good. She sees that it's desirable to make you wise. And so she eats of it. And then she gives some to her husband, to Adam, who was there with her. Now, I'm not sure if he witnessed the entire conversation, but he is there seeing her eat of the fruit. He could have stopped right there. If he is a type of Christ, there has to be something there that, that would make a way for her to be brought back if he doesn't eat. Because what it says, she gave it to him and he ate. And after he ate, right after that, in verse 7, it says, then the eyes of both were open. So at that point, after Adam ate, then their eyes were open. Their eyes were open to, to good and evil, right? Because that's the tree that they ate from. And so if he is a, a type of Christ, then there, there should have been something there where he could have stopped at that point, not eaten, and, and whatever the way was, made a way back for her. I, I, I truly believe that. And that's me talking. So it goes on in Romans 5. It talks about through Adam's disobedience, we got sin. We got transgression and therefore inherited death. And through Christ's obedience, we got righteousness. And we inherit eternal life by believing in what it is that he did for us. So the will that was involved here gives us inheritance. 
And the thing we need to remember is that the death has already occurred. It already happened. So we've already received the inheritance of eternal life. It's already started. You're not waiting for death to, for your death now to be able to spend that inheritance. We've talked about this before, but here is your scriptural proof that backs that up. You're not waiting until some death in the future, yours or otherwise, to be able to spend your inheritance of eternal life. That death has already happened. It's already occurred. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And we know that this covenant, the second covenant, God made with himself. Wasn't, wasn't going to offer margin for us to screw it up again. But that's already been done, right? In 2 Corinthians 5, it says he was, he was there in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Not turning away. Not pretending like he couldn't look on sin. But right there, arms stretched out in Christ. Drawing the whole world back to himself. Verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood, with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's an important thing to remember. Without blood, the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And again, in the Old Covenant, this shedding of blood was looking backwards at sins already committed. Was never looking forward. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered, offered once, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There's a lot there to look at. The, the, the things that we've been looking at in terms of the, the tabernacle and that sacrificial system that was in place under the old covenant. These are all copies of the heavenly thing. Because when Christ died and, and his blood was shed, he entered into the most holy place, into that heavenly tabernacle, 
and is there with God in the presence of God. And, and he's not doing so repeatedly. This was one time. That was, that was all that was required of him was that one time and that covered it all. I think it's also too important. It's important to remember here as well that we, we looked at Jeremiah 31 uh, verses 31 to 34 a couple of weeks ago. And in there it says that God will remember their sin no more. That's the covenant he said he was going to make. And that was through this offering, through the offering of Christ on the, the, the uh, cross that became an altar. This better offering was made. And through that, he will remember sins no more. It also talks about that in 2 Corinthians 5 as well. That this was done once. He doesn't have to do it again uh, repeatedly as the high priest did under the old covenant. And it says, but as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Has sin been put away? Do we still see sin in the world? Yes, we do. This is one of those things where you read it and you're like, wait, what? What is this talking about? If we're looking at, at this, this offering that Jesus made of himself and saying that it covers everything from the past and it also looks forward to things in the future, this is one of those things where we have to say, okay, this is, this is an already thing, but not yet. So it's kind of holding attention of already, but not yet. Because it says, just as it was appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, which we know already happened, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's the not yet part. So an already, but not yet. So those eagerly waiting for him, that's us. That's believers. If you are a believer and you are uh, really going after Christ, to be like Christ, to, to be his disciple, you are one who's eagerly waiting the second uh, coming. That's you right there. Going on in chapter 10, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So if you think about this, what it's saying, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, think about your own shadow. Is that you? Is your shadow you? No. It's not really you. It's not the reality. It can, it can mirror what you're doing. If your shadow's on the ground, you hold your arms up, arms go out, right? But if I'm looking at that, am I really looking at you? No. It's just your shadow. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. That's the shadow of the heavenly reality. The shadow of Jesus that was in the old covenant sacrificial system 
has to be continually done because it is not the true reality that is going to make perfect. That was done through Christ's offering, through the offering of himself, that sacrifice. Verse 2 says, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? If that were the case, if that shadow of the reality could make it happen, then there, there wouldn't be any need for continual sacrifice over and over again. Your, your consciousness wouldn't have any, any awareness of sin. And that's, that's what you need to be thinking about for focus in the new covenant. What is, what are you focused on? Are you focused on the reality of Christ or are you focused on the shadow? Because if you're focused on the reality of Christ, you're going to see holiness. And that's going to be on your mind more and more. Yes. Are you going to see sin in the world? Sure. But, but the focus, the, the, the consciousness of, of sin in self and in the body starts to be removed. And the things Angie was talking about earlier, the, the divisions that, that come up in the body, if we are conscious of holiness over conscious of sin, or whether you know, saying our awareness is higher of our holiness, of our, our oneness, those divisions are not going to matter. Those things aren't going to matter. They're going to start to disappear. When we have conversations and debates, sure, yes. But it's towards what? Multiplication, not division. This is awareness. This is consciousness. This is what it's saying here. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Would those sacrifices cease to be offered if the shadow could bring about sanctification permanently? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year where it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It just covers them up. That's what the shadow did. That's what the sacrifices in the Old Covenant did. We have the reality before us now, every day. The reality of Jesus who made the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate offering, makes us, has made us fit for sacred space. It's not a shadow. It is the reality of what we have. This is what I really want you to be able to take away from today is to be able to know that if, if I'm focused on the shadow down here, my consciousness is not going to be on holiness. It's going to be on something lesser than because it is not on reality. The objective truth of, of reality for us as believers is found in Christ. Not in anything that's presented from the world, not in anything that's tried, uh, uh, that's attempted to be uh, pushed on us. 
we can objectively say we know what reality is. We can tell people we have answers, we have solutions. Because we live in the reality of Christ. I think we're going to stop there for today. You have a sacrifice that's been made on your behalf that doesn't need to be repeated. You can place yourself on the altar anywhere you are at. Anytime God brings something up that says, I want to refine you here. I'm on the altar, God. What is it that you want to refine in me? And follow through with whatever it is that he's showing you. Whatever it is that he's telling you. We, we can't let it, we can't let the word sacrifice keep us from jumping on the altar. It, oftentimes that, that word has a, a negative connotation that uh, uh, says, oh, you're losing something. You're giving up something. Well, really, in reality, in the reality of being in Christ, it, it's not giving up anything. I, I'm being refined. I'm being brought to a new and greater level of glory. That's the reality of it. Offering up something, sacrificing, isn't, isn't giving up. It's in this respect, in, in the respect of discipling and being a disciple of Christ, it is refinement. You're actually gaining wisdom. You're gaining revelation. You're gaining new levels of glory. So keep that in mind this week. Ask Holy Spirit, what is it that uh, um, when, I, when I lay myself down on the altar as a living sacrifice, what is it that you want to refine in me? It may be something that uh, uh, isn't being removed from your life. It could be something that he says, Oh, this needs to be perfected in you. Like you're already starting down this, this path, down the narrow road, but I want to, I want to refine something. I want to, to highlight something, shine it up, make it prettier, right? It's not always about taking something away, something to keep in mind. Uh, with that, Gonna have Angie come up. I ran down to the bathroom and now I'm out of breath. That shows you how out of shape I am. I want to read something to you. Wasn't that good? Don't you? I just, I can't get enough of, of being reminded of what he's done. I have these moments throughout the day where there's just like this pause in me where I, it's all coming at my face and I'm like, oh my gosh, 
Can you imagine doing what he did? Accomplishing what he accomplished? Can you imagine having that level of responsibility put on you? Me either. Me either. And I'm like brought to this low place within myself all over again where I'm just like wanting to make much of what it is that he has done. Because who cares what I've done? Look at the lamb. In Isaiah 53, we get the best picture. For he grew up like a tender plant before him and like a root out of dry ground. He has no attracting form nor majesty that we should look upon him, nor beautiful appearance that we should even desire him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our sorrows. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The chastening of, or the chastening for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we have been healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And Jehovah has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and it was he who was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is dumb before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. And this is such a beautiful picture because do you know that you could have been doing your best work just to make it in the day of sacrifices? And you could think that you had the unblemished lamb that was going to cover the sins of you and your family. And you could have worked really hard to keep that lamb pure and spotless. But it had to pass the inspection to be accepted. And I just want you, can we just take a posture of the low place? I just really feel this like, I know it's hardwood. It's fine. You're going to be fine. You can't get hurt in the glory. I already told you that. Let's just take a really low place because I want us to understand this picture. Can you see this picture? Just close your eyes and still yourself. I want you to see the father pulling from the fold the best the most pure lamb he had. And I want you to see him as he puts a rope around his neck and he leads him. He leads him to the altar to be slain. He knows full well that this lamb will pass inspection. He will be the acceptable sacrifice. The acceptable sacrifice once and for all. Don't you dare look on the scene without the father in the picture. Father led the son to the slaughter. And I want you to find yourself at the place of Christ's altar, which is the foot of the cross. A man who never once 
tasted sin. A man who never desired anything outside of the righteousness that flows from the Father. Who pulled the transgressions off of you and I and heaped them on himself. Willing to give up his life to save yours. It's here that we see the Father entering into the most holy place. Jesus, the Lamb of God on the cross, willing to be slain for our sins. Father enters into the most holy place, and like Vince said, to reconcile the world to himself. And he did so through the blood of the Lamb, once and for all. It is only by the blood of the Lamb that we can enter in to the presence of the Father. It's only by the blood of the Lamb that we can even know to cry out, Abba. So, Father, right now we position ourselves in a low place. We are humbled by your sacrifice, Jesus. The whole plan just has our minds blown. We're in awe of your glory. The brilliance of who you are. That you would lay your one and only son down. And it's here at the foot of the cross at this altar that we find real life, true life. We lay ourselves down at the foot of your cross, Jesus. We just get under the cascading blood of your sacrifice, knowing that every impurity is being washed from us. Every impurity, Jesus. Thank you. And under this waterfall of your blood, God, we know there's healing property. Everything is attained here at this altar. We do. We lay down our lives. We become living sacrifices, but we don't lose, God. We gain everything. We gain everything. We count it all as loss. To be able to behold you, Lamb of God. It's only from this place that we truly live, turning our back on everything else. We choose you, Jesus. We choose you, Jesus. Shut up. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your sacrifice. Jesus, King of glory, we thank you for your sacrifice. 
There's no one else found worthy. It's you and you alone. Now, as we're sitting here at this place, at the foot of the cross, at our altar, some of you may need to do business with the Lord. Some of you may need to deal with the things that his finger is on. But I want you to understand that it's only in his kindness that he calls for repentance. And from there you level up. You're brought into better understanding of who the Christ is. Just let his wonder-working blood pour over you, washing it all away. Just submit to his authority. Trust me, there's no better place to be. And when you're ready, you can get up from this place and go partake of communion to enjoy the sacrifice that was made on your behalf to give you life full tilt. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And if you've never truly laid your life down before him, you've never traded yours for his, I want to invite you to do so right now. It's just a simple saying, God, I acknowledge that there's no better way And I want to learn to be a living sacrifice, to lay myself down, to gain everything, to follow you. Jesus, your name, your name above every other name, your name above every other name. 